Hi everyone and welcome to How to College for First Gens, our podcast where we have real conversations about what it's like to be a first generation student. If you're a new listener, our goal here is to democratize knowledge that we've gained along the way, learn a bit more about the first gen experience, and hopefully help others going through some of the challenges we've experienced by sharing lessons learned from fellow first gens. I'm Luz, one of the podcast co-hosts and a first generation student myself. Today, we continue our intro to grad school with an intro to the doctorate degree. Like a master's, there are many types of doctorate degrees depending on the field or industry. Doctorate degrees can be pursued either after your master's or directly after undergrad, and many programs often vary between four to six years. Doctorate degrees are the final and most advanced education you can seek and involves diving deep into a particular topic through research. I turn to some fellow first gens to help understand more about these doctorate degrees, how you apply, how the experience differs from undergrad, and what you really get out of those added years in school to help answer the question, is a doctorate degree right for me? Join me and our guests as we learn what it takes to have the most advanced degree in your field. Our first guest today is Itzel, who just graduated from college and has been accepted to a PhD program in machine learning. Hi, everyone. My name is Itzel Tapia. I am a first-generation college student. Both my parents immigrated here from Mexico. I'm the oldest, and I'm the first in the family to go to college, first to graduate. I just completed my bachelor's degree in December 2020. I enrolled in a graduate program pursuing a PhD in machine learning. Throughout my undergraduate career, I was pursuing a degree in computer science. I had opportunities for mentorship and several internships and learning about research and different applications of machine learning and computer science in different fields. One thing I want to mention is the first time I heard of Itso, she was making headlines in Dallas for being able to complete her journey and overcoming so many obstacles. It was a bit intimidating at first because like they, you know, asking a lot of really personal questions. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I hadn't really heard a story like mine shared in the news. And so I thought it was important for me to talk about everything that I went through and to motivate other Latinas, other first-gen students or other moms. I have a five-year-old kid, so that's obviously a really big part of my life. It's not that I consider it so much an obstacle, it's just it's another challenge that I to manage. So I was excited when I actually read the final product and I got a lot of great feedback. You know, complete strangers reached out to me asking for advice. I'm really happy that I went through with it. Yeah, and I think you have such an amazing story because just being a first gen in general is already tough enough as it is. But on top of being a mother and like putting your yourself through school. I can't even imagine how difficult it must have been to juggle so many things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know. <laughs> now that I'm done with my undergrad, I look back, I'm like, how did I survive? I feel like I just kept my head down, focusing on the immediate task at hand. When I first enrolled in college, I was at a community college pursuing an associate's degree. I came back to school about seven or eight years after I graduated from high school. So I had a you know about seven years of work experience. So I kind of knew what was out there without a college education. I knew how difficult 
difficult it was just trying to get a good job where people valued you and had faith in you to do more. So when I came back to school, I knew for sure I wanted to do something different than what I had been doing. And I just wasn't sure what, especially being a first gen student, I feel like it was really intimidating to even think about anything in STEM. But after that first semester in college, I just stumbled upon computer science. I took an intro to computer science class. And after that class, I was like, okay, this is really cool. So then I started looking at career paths and like what my future might look like. Even though I was focusing on my classes at the time, I also took time to reflect on what I wanted my life to look like two years from now, five years from now. And I knew that pursuing anything in STEM would be more difficult, more time consuming because I would have to add on two years of college education versus just, you know, pursuing a technical trade job. And I also knew that all the barriers that come with being a first gen student on top of parenting, I knew it was going to be more difficult, but I looked at it like it was like a cross between, am I going to pursue something that is going to be nice and quick and it might be something that I'm not going to fully enjoy or do I want to fuck it up for two more years? <laughs> so at that point I made that decision. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I started looking at what kind of careers can I pursue. And But when I transferred to UTD, I was like, okay, what did I get myself into? This is not what I signed up for. This is way too hard. Because the professors at a, at a university level, like their expectations are so much higher. I also felt into intimidated because let's say 90% male and there was maybe one other student that was like an older person. So I felt so intimidated because I was like, man, all these kids have been coding since like middle school. Here I come just started like two semesters ago. So a lot of like that imposter syndrome, like really hit me hard the first semester. And it was something that I really struggled with. They think that's the part where you have to like really reach out to other people and try to connect with your peers. And if you can, like find a mentor, either a professor or like somebody that works in a field that you want to work in down the line. Because I think that support is so important. But first, making connections, right? Like even though I felt so intimidated by them, I started to feel more like they're not that different from me. Like, you know, we share all these things in common. So that really helped. And then finding a mentor, I think, was like the difference. Having a mentor is so, so important. And I know when I first heard about mentors, I was like, yeah, okay, sure. But then when I actually got the mentor, I was like, whoa, you know, it just puts you at a different level. They give you so much feedback and important information for any student, first gen or not. You know, like we don't even know the questions to ask. Well, that's been super helpful. And I I love that you are already throwing out all these really useful tips. One thing you mentioned is that you were thinking a little bit ahead about you would be doing as your career, like five years down the line. When did you figure out that there was such a thing as graduate school? Yeah, so I didn't even understand the difference between undergrad and graduate when I first enrolled in college. I started to kind of piece things together when I started in the honors program at my community college, and I had a really awesome advisor. And she immediately identified me and was like, hey, let me show you the ropes. So she started talking to me about research and getting a PhD and going to graduate school. So it started for me like really early on in my undergraduate career. Back then, I was like, yeah, there's no way. Like, like when she explained what it was, I was like, no, you're crazy. But then when I graduated from my community college, I applied 
applied to this summer research program at UTD. The National Science Foundation has these programs across all sorts of universities, even some community colleges, where they partner with a professor who's going to be conducting research in whatever field. And they'll give this professor money to hire on undergraduate students to perform research. So this program is research experience for undergraduate. And it's like any type of career that you can imagine. So I basically, you know, found this through my honors mentor. And I found this program at UTD that was doing this and you know they pay me a stipend so I was like hey this is awesome like I can go here learn some cool stuff and get paid <laughs> so honestly didn't really think I was gonna have a shot up to this point I hadn't had any sort of relevant work experience so I'm like man they're not gonna want to hire me on but sure enough I was accepted into the program so this program was like that door that was like opening for me because not only did they focus on teaching you a lot of cool stuff in your field, like how to do research and like what kind of problems are out there, what are people asking questions about, what are people not asking questions about. So that's like one part of the program. But the other part of the program, which I think is really cool, is that they try to target like underrepresented groups in the specific field. So for my field, women are underrepresented, especially Latinas, minorities, first generation students. So there's this component to the program where they talk to you about what to do, what to expect and how to go about, you know, navigating getting into graduate school and then once you're in graduate school what to do after that. So I thought that was really cool about the program and they brought in faculty to talk to us about why you should apply to graduate school, like what's the difference between just getting a bachelor's and going into industry and what's the difference in going to graduate school, getting a PhD and like the different career paths that you can pursue. And I got to do like hands-on research, which for me, like when I first started doing that, I was like, this is awesome. I want to do this for the rest of my life. So that's that was the turning point for me. After that program, I went and started my two years at UTD. And then I heard about this other research program and I went ahead and pursued that. It's called the Green Fellowship. They partner you with a lab at the hospital, cutting edge research in healthcare. For me, it was like machine learning and artificial intelligence research in the radiation oncology department. So everything to do with cancer treatment. And that experience also was just mind blowing because then at that point I learned, okay, research in computer science doesn't just mean you're going to be doing stuff in technology. Like there's all these other fields where you can apply your skill set, like healthcare and transportation, like literally any field that you can think about, you can do research and machine learning. So that was like, you know, another really cool experience. I think most people when they hear computer science think the tech companies, but it's very cool that you mentioned like it is everywhere and that you can do it in like any industry. So the mentor is the first person that planted the seed. It was up to me to water that seed by reaching out to these programs that expose me to research and graduate studies. You can't just rely on people giving you information. You actually have to create actionable items from the information that you're getting. And just also believing in yourself because that's like a really big understated part. You have to reach out for something, even if you feel like you're not qualified or there's no way you're ever going to get it. Like you have to give yourself that opportunity. Any opportunity that you don't pursue is something that you're not going to get for sure. But if you at least try, like you never know where you can go. 
So it sort of sounds that for you, you like the idea of graduate school a little bit more because you could apply it in a lot of different industries and you really like that whole research aspect of it. But did you think about going to industry straight away after your undergrad or as you kind of got enticed by that research component, did you kind of know, yeah, I want to go ahead and apply to graduate school right after undergrad and potentially pursue a graduate degree? Back when I was in that REU program, I asked one of the faculty visitors if it was possible to conduct research with just like a bachelor's degree or if it was like you needed to have a graduate degree. And I was told that, yeah, you have to have a PhD if you want to be in research. But from my own personal experience, what I found is that that's not necessarily always the case. You can work in a research lab, be it at a hospital, at a university, in industry, doing research in machine learning specifically without having a graduate degree. So that's still like a path that I found. For my field specifically, I think the fact that the field is so new and there's such a big need, we need machine learning researchers like in so many different places that they're starting to accept like, okay, there's not enough people. There's not enough knowledge to go around. Like most of the machine learning people that are with a PhD are either working like at Facebook, Amazon, or, you know, on a faculty track. So there's such a great need for those people that have that knowledge, even if you don't have the graduate degree, you just have some kind of, you know, like me, like I just have a semester's worth of hands-on experience. So for my personal experience, I was able to find an industry role where I'm doing research in machine learning. They know that I don't have my graduate degree and they're okay with that. They just, they need the people. So you can do it either way. You can go directly after your bachelor's into a role where you're doing research if you have that experience. So if you use your time wisely when you're in, in a university program like summers or internships or if like if you can find a research fellowship that you can do it during a semester in lieu of classes then that will be give you like some kind of experience that you can put on your resume and that'll make you stand out so it's definitely possible because I'm doing it and like if I can do it other people can do it too it's just it's just the more traditional path I guess to go and get a graduate degree What's the difference between a PhD and a master's? And could you go into doing research with a master's or would you need a PhD to dive into maybe the nitty gritty that you initially wanted to dive into? Or how would that look like in terms of like the end result? So let's say you have your bachelor's and you go into a master's program. You will more than likely have to pay for tuition out of pocket unless you can find a scholarship program that will fund your education. It's a two-year program designed more specialized learning, like you're focusing on the specific place where you want to work. So with our example, with machine learning, you'll just focus on machine learning data and stuff like that. A PhD is different. Obviously, the time dedication is different, right? A master's is two years. A PhD is anywhere between three to five years or sometimes more. Then also in a PhD program, your tuition is paid for. And depending on how you go into the program, you'll usually have a stipend. In the PhD program, you can either be a teacher's assistant where you will be required to work between 20-25 hours a week where you basically grade papers and help professors. You'll get a stipend though. So each month they'll pay you, but they'll also pick up the bill of your tuition. So you don't have to pay anything out of pocket for tuition. Now you can also be a research assistant where it's not so much grading papers and doing like the kind of repetitive type of work. Like you're actually helping a professor conduct research in the field that you're working in. So that's 
that's really cool because it gives you exposure to that research part, which is basically what you're doing as a PhD student is you're getting an education to become a researcher. Or the path that I'm taking is I was very fortunate to find mentorship within my school and they have a fellowship that they applied for and I was awarded this fellowship. So basically what I'm doing is the tuition is paid for and I get a stipend, but I don't have to be teaching, assisting for X amount of hours every week. So that obviously gives you more time to focus on school and reach out to professors and do research. But there's, even though you're still working, I guess, your tuition and your stipend isn't directly tied to that work. So that's something I definitely encourage people if they're thinking about getting a PhD or what that might look like is looking at research fellowships. The, the National Science Foundation has the GRFP, I think it is. There's a lot of them out there for minorities, women, first-generation students specifically. So there's definitely a lot of funds out there if you want to go to graduate school. If you're not sure, if you want to go full out and say, yeah, I'm taking on this commitment to be a PhD student, you can also do your master's master's and see how you feel. Because even when you graduate with your master's, you can still go into a PhD program. So like if you go bachelor's, get your master's, at that point, you would still go into the program. You wouldn't be taking classes the first two years. So like for me, if I graduated with my bachelor's and I went directly into the PhD program, the first two years, I'm still taking classes. And those are like master's level classes. So I'm basically taking a master's class with the other students that are not pursuing a PhD. But then after I complete those of master level classes, you know, you find your faculty mentor and you start actually doing the research, which at that point you're done with classes. You're just focusing on making a significant contribution to the field and writing your dissertation. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. There's not just one path that you have to take. I went to this workshop for the National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship Program. This program pays for three years of your PhD. So it could pay for like the first two years of your PhD where you're taking classes and then one additional year when you're actually doing research. So it's an awesome program. If you're going to go into the PhD program directly after your bachelor's, you can apply as a senior. Let's say you're graduating this spring. So you would apply the fall before you graduate for the program for the following year. And then you can apply one more time as a PhD student. Or you can also, let's say you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do the graduate program unless I get it paid for. You graduate with your bachelor's degree, you apply, you don't get it. So you go into industry. You can keep applying as a working professional in industry because you're technically not a first year PhD student yet. So you can, you basically get unlimited tries (laughs) to apply to their program. Now, let's say you do start graduate school and you didn't get the program or you only get one shot after you start graduate school to apply and get that fellowship. So that was something that I thought was really cool because I was like, hey, nobody tells you this. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what the application process is like and really how that is different from just applying to regular undergrad. Little disclaimer, my application process was quite different to the the usual application process because I applied in the middle of COVID. They waived the requirement for my GRE. They waived 
you know, any kind of application fee. Like they try to make it as easy as possible. But I can kind of talk to you about what it's like traditionally. You do have to take the GRE. That's just like an exam that you take that basically measures analytical, reading comprehension, math, very similar to the SATs. They also look at transcripts, of course, how you did as an undergraduate. They look at your resume. So this is when I said earlier how important it is to get exposure to research because they're looking for students that are almost certainly going to pursue research. So they want to see what did you do as an undergraduate? Were you in any labs? Did you do any research program. They also ask, I think, three letters of recommendation. It might vary by school. So these letters of recommendations, it's important if you did do research to get those letters from the faculty or the people that oversaw your work. It's important for those letters to talk about your qualifications as a researcher. So talk about significant contributions that you made. If you had any kind of publications and that's like the cherry on top, they want to talk to your research potential and your research work. They also have the personal statement, but it's basically you talking about what your objective is. You can also talk about the kind of work that you've done. Something that I brought into mind was talking about like the journey, because I feel like there's no really other place in the whole application where you can talk about that, but you can talk about that kind of stuff in the personal statement. And for me, it's something that's very important for me to share because I didn't want them to be looking at my application and be like, well, why did she not do more? Or why weren't her grades higher or things like that. So for me, that portion of the application was a chance for me to give them background and be like, hey, I might not have a 4.0, but I did have, you know, all these other obstacles that I overcame and to kind of show them that you have that grit and that passion for what you're pursuing, I think is really important. If you can add that in somehow, I think it'll make you stand out. I think that's pretty much the the application, what that looks like. And of course, that's very different from an undergraduate application. And it's different from a master's application because for the master's, you don't have to talk about research. There might be a personal statement component, but you don't have to emphasize the research as much. So did you have anyone help you put that together or what were some of those biggest unknowns that you kind of ran into? I wasn't able to get anybody to help me. Again, my circumstances were very different than usual. And I feel like even if I would have done this, a couple years ago, it would have been different because with the pandemic, it was just hard to have that one-on-one help with someone. I'm sure I could have scheduled something virtually, but it was a really big challenge. But I would definitely recommend if you can to find a professor maybe that you connected with or advisor, somebody to help you and guide you through the process. But as far as unknowns, I had had an idea of what the application was like. So I looked ahead. So this goes back to what I said earlier. Like even if you're so busy and stuck on what you're doing at the moment, it's important to keep one eye looking forward, anticipate what's coming so nothing catches you off guard. So when I got to the point where I was actually working on the application, I felt prepared. I knew what I was getting myself into and I knew what was required because I had looked ahead I guess the biggest part, or at least for me, that made me uncertain was knowing if I had done enough. Again, not being able to compare myself to like my parents or getting their feedback is something that I feel like a lot of other people that are not first gen students have the luxury because it can help guide them and tell them like, you're on the right path, keep going, you're doing a good job or like, hey, no, you kind of have to pick up the pace. So a lot of it is like on you to decide, is this enough? I don't know, like, should I do more? So for me, that was the hardest part. I was not knowing if I had done enough. 
enough. Yeah, I think that's so important that you emphasize that one bit about being able to keep one eye on what's coming next so nothing does come out as a surprise. So how did your family feel about you going back to get a PhD and doing even more years? I mean, you mentioned it could be anywhere from like three to five years delaying going and getting a full-time job. My family's response was all over the place. So I am Hispanic. With that comes a lot of cultural expectations and a lot of gender stereotypes and biases. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is unfortunate because that's another obstacle that Latinas have to overcome trying to get an education. And for me, I have a kid. So that made it even more so the expectation of being a mom and being there for my child and putting her needs above everything else and not having any sort of goals. So that made it very difficult. And to a certain degree, I'm able to tune that out and ignore it. Taking people's comments and advice with a grain of salt is all I can say for other Latinas, because I know I feel you, I've been there and I know how it is. I didn't get support from my spouse at the beginning. It was very much, you're crazy. I don't know what you're doing. Because when I started school, my kid was a baby. Now she's in kindergarten, so she's a bit older, but there's all these other set of obligations. So I didn't get as much support as I would have hoped for, but I try to focus on the people that disappoint me, like my mom. She's on the other side of the timeline, right? Like she's looking back and thinking about everything that she gave up and didn't pursue because she put us first. She's my rock. She's like, hey, if you want to do this, then do it. I'll support you in any way I can. I don't want you to 50 years from now look back and regret not doing something. So everything else, all the other comments that I've received, I just completely blocked them out and zoned in on my mom and the support that she gave me. You don't have to have everybody in your life be approving what you're doing. And it's your life. Five years is nothing compared to the next 50 years, 60 years of your life. So If it's something that you want, you just have to push hard. Like, I'm definitely not going to be like that with my daughter. Well, so thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you on and hear and learn from your story. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. It was my pleasure. And I hope this inspires other women and minorities and first-gen students to go after what they want to. It's definitely worth it. Our next guest is Ashley, a current clinical psychology doctoral student at Baylor University. My name is Ashley, and I'm a first-year doctoral student in clinical psychology at Baylor University. So why don't you tell us a little bit about just your first-gen experience and your college journey up to where you are now? I grew up as a bicultural first-generation student. I was raised in a single-parent household. So my dad is a Jamaican immigrant and my mom is Black American. And so I really grew up with a dual mentality of what it meant to be a first-generation As someone who's the child of the low-income Black family and also the child of an immigrant. And so like one of the things that comes to mind more than anything is the idea that there's this immigrant dream. My dad calls it like the Jamaican dream to like accomplish things that your predecessors haven't accomplished and coming to this country to make something of yourself and to be the best at what that is. And then my mom was just like, I'm a single mom and I don't make a lot of money. So if you want to get to college, you're going to need to get a scholarship and just be smart and 
and study, but I definitely felt like I had to work harder than other people in the room because I just didn't have the same means as I felt like other classmates did. If I was struggling with something, I couldn't go home and ask my parents to help me. Well, I'm just going to have to push forward and like figure things out because we don't have money to afford a tutor. And like my mom said, if I want to go to college, like I need to be smart and study. So that's how I propelled myself to getting into Rice University. And I applied as a Questbridge scholar and was like very surprised at how welcomed I felt as a lower income student. And it was during my time at Rice that I decided I wanted to do my doctoral degree in clinical psychology. From there, I applied to Columbia. It was one of the PhD programs I applied to. And I actually didn't get into a PhD program right away. Columbia, they didn't accept me, but they were like, hey, we have this master's program that's really good for competitive students like you if you just want more coursework in research experiences in clinical psychology. And so... I took it. And then from there, I graduated early, took a break, worked as a research coordinator, which is very typical for those who want to go into clinical psychology, and then ended up applying to Baylor and getting into the program. Let's back up a little bit. When did you first learn about graduate school? During my time at Rice, I was majoring in cognitive sciences and psychology. And what that meant, as I found out, was that you're probably going to go to graduate school because there's not a lot that you can do with a bachelor's in cognitive science and psychology unless you want to go into consulting or like computer systems and programming design. So I already had a natural curiosity and was already really involved in research. A lot of my mentors, a lot of my professors kind of saw a doctoral degree or graduate school as the next step. And I felt like they prepped me really well. I had a research internship that lasted throughout over half of my time as an undergrad. And so I felt like I was in a really good position for grad school. And it was just the encouragement of supervisors that really kind of helped me feel I was ready to take that next step. But when I first got to Rice, I was just like, nope, I don't need graduate school. And then little did I know I would absolutely (laughs) need graduate school and would have to go on to get a doctorate if I wanted to do what I really wanted to do. I think that's interesting that it's sort of built into the culture of those majors, perhaps, that like if you want to go and get a job related to those particular fields, you need a lot more education and just a bachelor's degree might not cut it. Yeah. With clinical psychology, you apply to these programs and everyone comes in with a ton of research experience. Usually if you're in research, that in and of itself is such an integral part of graduate school and kind of how they prep you for graduate studies and doing like your theses and defending your dissertation, presenting at conferences. It's like part of a culture. So maybe for some of our younger listeners that are not familiar with the term research, what do you mean when you say research and conducting research and publishing papers? Like, what does that mean in your realm? Clinical psychology research is kind of spread out across different disciplines because it's so interdisciplinary. And so research in general is really just having a question and using a scientific method, finding ways to investigate that question and what the answers could be. 
be. Coming up with a hypothesis for how you think something works or relationships that you think would have some type of impact on each other, and then designing an experiment to find out if those things are actually true. And then answering that question and publishing that for kind of the public to consume and to reflect on. And for clinical psychology, a lot of the research is both qualitative, which is kind of asking a question and allowing for multiple answers to arise and allowing for feedback to be delivered with words and not necessarily strictly numbers. And quantitative research is very numbers-based, can be done through assessment, can be done through biometrics, can be done in a host of ways. And in our field, that could be neurological research, looking at fMRI scans, or looking at statistics on something, on self-report measures, or looking at behavior It's so multifaceted, but I think that's one of the things that I really like about clinical psychology is you can pull from so many different places because what you're really studying is the human condition and how our thoughts and behaviors play into that and impact a series of things that may go on in our life. That sounds pretty cool. Shifting gears a little bit, as you were going through undergrad, you realized you kind of needed that PhD to do what it is you wanted to do. So what were those personal and professional goals that you had in mind that made you decide that you needed to get that PhD? I just wanted to feel fulfilled. So mental illness kind of runs in my family. And so growing up, I was exposed to a lot of things and had a lot of questions about just how our environment interacted with our genetics. And so I actually started undergrad as a biochemistry major because I was really more interested in like genetics and neuroscience. But then when I got to Rice, luckily they had the cognitive sciences major, which included neuroscience, but also included linguistics and psychology and computer systems and have this more multifaceted approach to understanding cognition. And that is really where I started to kind of get my groove. And so my personal goals were just to be able to constantly be around the things I loved, like the things that just brought out a natural curiosity. Professionally, I think I realized that I had a love of research that I didn't want to go away. But also I wanted to actually be the one behind the intervention, the one delivering it. I'm a very people person. And so I love talking to people about what they're going through. And, you know, I thought about like, you know, clinical psychologist is one way to do that. But there's also master's level therapists who give therapy, provide interventions, consult the research literature. And I could do that too. I wouldn't necessarily have to get a PhD to do therapy, but it was the kind of devotion I felt to research and wanting to continue doing it that drove me to deciding, you know, no, I want to get my doctoral degree and I want to get it in clinical psychology because this is going to open up doors, not only just in research and clinical practice, but also in academia so that I would be able to teach as well. And during undergrad, I got the opportunity to teach two student taught courses. And in those experiences, discovered my love for being at the front of a classroom. Clinical psychology would allow me to do all of those. So you mentioned that you went and got your master's first as more of like a stepping stone. So how did you choose to go and do the master's versus maybe just applying for that PhD on the next round? So nobody talks about this, but people get rejected a lot. (laughs) And I got rejected a lot. 
clinical psychology PhD programs typically have two to six percent acceptance rate on average. Each year, your cohort is about six to eight people. So some programs admit more than that and some admit less, but the programs I was applying to admitted these very small cohorts. And when you're looking at hundreds of applications and you're that first gen student straight out of undergrad who still doesn't really know what a personal statement's supposed to look like because nobody in your family has written one. You don't really know how to interview for a doctoral program because no one in your family has even gotten a master's degree. I struggled and I wanted to get the master's degree because I felt that my time in undergrad was so split. I was taking 18 credit hours on average every semester. I was in kind of like this 20 hour a week commitment for my research internship. And I had a work study job and I had leadership positions. So there were so many other factors that were pulling me in these different directions. And honestly, I just felt like my GPA for what it needed to be for a doctoral program was not where I wanted it to be when I graduated undergrad. And I think those factors contributed to not getting into grad school right away. And so it was a blessing in disguise when I was offered the chance to get my master's at Columbia. But applications are expensive. I couldn't even afford to really apply to a lot of programs. And they always tell you when you apply to a doctoral program, you got to apply to a lot because most of them are not going to give you an interview and most of them are not going to give you an offer. And so I really struggled with that. I was very humble (laughs) in my first round of applications. There were only really five schools that I could apply for. But by the time I paid for my GRE and I paid for the first three applications, I didn't have any money to actually apply for the last two. My mentor, she actually paid for the last two applications for me. And she was like, you know, I know this is a lot and you're not asking me to do this, but I believe in you as a student. I believe you are going to be a great researcher in this field. And all I ask you do is pay it forward so that when someone else is in your position, just pay the act forward. And it was because of her donation to my application cycle that I even had the guts to apply to Columbia because I was like, I'm not going to waste my money on a school that's probably going to reject me. And then she was like, no, still do it. And so I ended up not getting accepted to their PhD, not even getting an interview, but they extended the option to attend their master's program. After I actually had one interview and did not get into that doctoral program straight out of undergrad, I took the master's offer because I was like, you know, at the very least, I can get my GPA to the point it needs to be for a doctoral program. And my undergraduate studies, like they didn't really have a lot of clinical psychology classes because the university is so cognitive, behavioral, but also like neuroscience driven. But that was really the driving factor was that I need to up my GPA and I could not afford to apply to more schools. I thought it would be good to have the experience to still work with my advisor. I ended up working with the faculty advisor that I wanted to do my PhD with while I was at Columbia. She was the one that signed off on my master's thesis. So I still got to have that experience. And that was great. Learned even more than what I thought I would learn anywhere in this master's program. And because I had all of this research 
college experience, I actually completed my master's degree in a quicker amount of time than the average student in that program. So then by the time I graduated, I applied to PhD programs and PsyD programs and did much better, much better after getting a job, making my own money, being able to save up to retake the GRE, actually applied to like a lot more schools. The opportunities just opened up for me and I got several interviews and several offers and picked the program that really kind of fit my personal and professional goals. You've brought up so many good points. One, like the whole quote unquote hidden curriculum of things that you're not even aware of. Definitely, I think one of those things that people just don't really know unless they've gone through it. And you're like, oh my gosh, like now I have to pay for all these things. Like you're taking all my money for these rejections. Exactly. That's how it felt. It was like, I'm paying so much money to be rejected by so many schools. So not a great feeling, but I persisted. And so many people told me like, it's okay if you fail, because honestly, 96% of applicants are just not going to get that offer. And so I think that helped me cope a little better, but no one likes being rejected, but I did get in. And so that just goes to show these programs are honestly systemically set up to give more leniency to the privileged. And as a first gen student, that is so hard to expect, you know, someone coming out of pocket and paying the kind of crazy amount of fees that come with just even applying not even like traveling to interview, but like just applying. At one point I was having an identity crisis because it's also like in clinical psychology, it's about fit with a mentor. So I don't know how many other PhD programs do it this way, but our admissions process isn't like, oh, an admissions board accepts people. It's like a mentor accepts you. Like it's one person that chooses one person. And so I had met with other clinical psychologists who were prepping me for the interview and they worked in like departments that were closely associated with mine at the job I had before I got in and they all told me some of these interviews, it's like a personality assessment (laughs) when you go in. Research is one part of it, but you're going to be giving mental health treatment to people. And so they need to make sure that you don't have a personality problem. It's so multifaceted, like it really just comes down to like, do I like you as a person, but also do your research interests align with mine? And when you know it's going to be that selective, like I'm a person of color, a low income first gen student, I don't look like a lot of people who are in my program. And that's something that my program is trying to be more open about the fact that there is a lack of students in the program who are from minority ethnic groups who are from lower socioeconomic groups, because when you have the majority of a program look a certain way, even as you're applying, you know, as an applicant, you see that and you're like, I don't fit in here. You know, how is a faculty mentor going to see me fitting into a program where I don't even see myself fitting in? And so it just becomes really nerve wracking. And I was like, is it me? Is it my research? Like, (laughs) am I just not smart enough? Do they just what parts do they not like about me? So kind of going off of that a little bit, what has it been like to be in the program? Like you've noticed that there's a lot of people that don't look like you. What have been some of the other like biggest surprises about going through graduate school? When I applied, there were actually a lot of people who, like me, had chosen to do a master's degree before going into the program. But my cohort is made up of people who are coming straight out of undergrad. That being said, there are like people in my cohort who are in their like mid 40s, middle age, or, you know, just fresh out of undergrad 
fresh 22 year olds who do not have as much experience as I had coming in. And I think that's been interesting for me because sometimes I think of it as, well, yeah, you know, that was my dream. But I also think I came in with a higher level of knowledge that has really benefited me and has led to a lot of clinical opportunities and research opportunities that I'm getting pretty early on in the program. So, you know, I came in knowing what I wanted my research project to be, already having gone through a master's thesis. I knew exactly how I wanted to structure it. So the conversation during the interview and now working with my faculty mentor, it feels like a walk in the park because there's just so much literature I've seen that he's also seen. So those conversations come a lot easier. And like there are people in my cohort that complain like, oh, I don't like the research I'm doing. I don't like the research my faculty mentor is doing, but I don't know what I want to do to even suggest, you know, something different. That's so cool that you were able to get that master's experience then sort of kind of hone in on those particular issues for yourself. Absolutely. And because I had my master's degree, my boss was great in that she kind of let me be really independent when I wanted to present at a conference. She was like, yeah, go ahead, drop the abstract. So I already came in feeling independent in that regard. And she was like, you have a master's degree, do some of the clinical work, you know, on our study too. So I actually already built up a lot of clinical hours, which for clinical psychology is really hard to come by because not often do you get to work with a clinical population without a license and also just helped me in terms of getting well adjusted to my practicum site. It just helped so much. There was a lot that I think I came in feeling like, oh man, I'm like the person who had to get a master's degree and everyone just was already smart and had it together, you know, when they came in. But it was actually like, oh, well, I still actually like the fact that I came in with a master's degree because it's making things a lot easier for me to juggle. So how does your timeline look like now with a PhD? I mean, yeah, initially you wanted to go straight from undergrad and you had like a particular timeline in mind, but with everything else that happened, you've had to adjust that. My program in particular has a lockstep model, which means every cohort takes the same classes every year and will go on internship together, which is it's a year after you've completed your first four years of coursework where you'll spend a year getting tons of just clinical experience that would take place in my fifth year and then I'm done. My program's actually on the shorter end in terms of its timeline because our research projects and our doctoral theses, it's expected that we will have those completed by the end of the fourth year. And for other programs, it can go on to six or seven years. I think I've heard a lot of times when you get a PhD, you do get that master's along the way after the first one or two years. Yeah, the program is designed where no matter what you came in with, everyone's going to get their master's degree the end of the second year. And for just strictly research-based PhDs, I know like once you get that master's, you either have like a year or two more of coursework. And then honestly, it's up to you when you finish. Just, you know, whenever your doctoral thesis like comes together, your dissertation comes together. So the end of that varies for so many people. So what are some lessons learned and tips that you would offer other students who may be thinking about applying to grad school? 
I would say, honestly, find a really good mentor in your field. For me, the mentor I found has been my strongest recommender. Every year that I've applied, she's written me a letter and, you know, she's given me encouragement. She'll set up lunches with me. And really, it's like she's now turned into somewhat of like a colleague because having now made it into a program, I'll see her at conferences and I may even apply to an internship site that she's supervising. And so finding a mentor that is going to stay in your corner throughout your career is a really good thing. My boss, who's a health psychologist, had mentioned before, you know, there are people that she's interviewed for postdoctoral fellowships that she really enjoyed their interviewing process. Maybe they didn't come on and actually join her team, but she still would get their grants. You know, like if they applied for a grant and she was the editor or she was the reviewer on a grant, she would see their paper, see their grant and remember the name. And she's like, you know, that person was a really great applicant. They gave me a really good feeling. So, you know, it's not like you can just assume or direct directly accept someone without just checking for, you know, revisions and things. But she kind of went to say like, you know, it really makes a difference if you're able to make those connections and not burn bridges. And that's something that starting out in this field, a lot of people don't realize is you do become known in your field because it's such a selective group that makes it up the ivory tower that way. So I would say that's my biggest advice. Find a mentor in your field early, apply for fellowships, sign up for workshops about where to find financial assistance early, especially because as a first gen, you're already behind in the game. And don't interview for programs with the mindset that you need to be what they're looking for. Don't feel like you have to walk into a room and look like all of the people around you. Just interview with confidence and interview like you are interviewing the program itself. I feel like for first gens, we can really have that imposter syndrome take hold of us and cause us to like interview thinking we have to be everything they want us to be. But I think your personality and your ambition comes across so much clearer and in your favor when you interview with the confidence of keeping the program in mind as something that really should fit your needs. Yeah, I think that's super well put. Such great advice. So hopefully our listeners out there who are maybe interested in going into a PhD will take advantage of that. But with that, thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us today on the podcast. Definitely been lovely to have you and get to know a little bit more about your experience with a PhD. Absolutely happy to be here and good luck to all of those who are out there applying or starting out in their PhD programs. More power to the course. Our final guest is Dr. Norman, who holds multiple degrees, including a doctor of education, and uses her degree to be both a professor and a business owner. Well, Luz, thank you so very much for having me. I am so excited to be here. I am the founder and CEO of First Gen College Consulting in Houston, Texas. To make sure that the first generation college student identity is understood, amplified, and supported, and making sure that college student development is at the forefront of what my company does. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what was it like growing up and how did you get through school? Well, the first thing is I had no idea I was a first-generation college student. So I went through first two years not even understanding about this identity, although I felt it since day when I stepped on campus. So I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee, and I was raised by a single mother. My mother immigrated from La Ceva, Honduras. She got her GED, and she had always told us, you all are going to college, 
So of course I'm sitting here as a teenager going, well, how am I supposed to go someplace we can't afford to go? I don't even know how to get there. So thankfully I had people in my school around me that put me in a position to be college ready. I was pushed into an honors program, told to take AP classes. I was a college student athlete. So if you told me to do something and you were my teacher and my coach, I did it because you knew way more than I did. And I was just going with the flow. I also had people in my community and in my church that really took me under their wings of volunteering and being out there. I didn't realize I was building this college profile. No, I was just doing whatever they told me to do. And thankfully, I was offered a scholarship to run track and field at a division one university. So that paid for my college education. I was so excited to be able to do that as a student. But I I grew up in one of the largest housing projects in Memphis. And because I was low income, I often hid that part of me. And so when I got to college, people didn't necessarily think that I was from a low income family. On campus, we would have all kinds of events. I would pretend that I needed to study and that's why I couldn't go. Really, I had no money to be able to do anything. And I was really thankful, right, for being a student athlete because we were taken care of. My food, my housing, all of that. And so really understanding that identity and that dynamic of how I hid who I was very early on with all of these identities of being a Black Latina, of being poor, of being first gen, (laughs) being a college student athlete. But it was in my junior year where I, I met a friend who was in the TRIO program and she taught me about the first gen identity. I remember immediately going back to my coach and saying, do you know about this TRIO program? And he goes, yeah, you don't have time for that because you're a student athlete. but I made time to be a trio adjacent. So even though I couldn't get into the program, I made friends with trio scholars and really started to understand the identity. From that moment on my junior year, when I understood who I was, I shouted from the mountaintops who I was. My freshman and sophomore year the whole time, I just thought I was completely alone. But when I found those that that had similar stories and similar feelings, it was a huge relief. And it really catapulted me, I think, in my college career and to this day, why I'm so very passionate about helping students in college and universities with success. So I think that's very interesting because I think you're absolutely right that student athletes just have a completely different experience than maybe the average college student. How did you end up getting on this track of going to graduate school, pursuing this doctor degree? So I told you I was raised by a single mom. My father wasn't in our, our lives. and I had always had this air about me of I was going to prove to him that he should have stayed because I'm awesome. And I said, I'm going to show him how awesome I could be since no one has ever graduated from college in my family. I'm going to go as far as I can go. For me, my athleticism was a path to graduate school. I utilized my talent to get further in my studies. So I knew I loved education. I knew I wanted to go further. At the time, I thought it was a master's degree. And then later on, learned about doctorates. A lot of times we think about the PhD. And I learned in graduate school, that was not the only doctorate degree. There's Juris Doctors, there's Doctors of Education, there's Doctors in Music. There's lots of different terminal degrees, doctorate level that I learned about in graduate school. And I started to see people who also identified as first gen in my faculty as well as graduate students. I was just like starry eyed with understanding. I was like, oh, so first gen, like we could do this too. 
So I was learning right along the way, right? I, I didn't plan to get a doctorate in education, but once I learned about it and, and I really thought about why do I want to get a doctorate, it evolved into a passion. And I, I really did say, if I am going to be the best at what I do, I have to learn as much as I can. And that includes receiving a terminal degree. It was absolutely an unknown space because talk about bachelor's degree and first gen. Then you go into a master's degree first gen and a doctorate degree. Oh, forget it. Forget trying to find somebody, <laughs> right, who, who had the same experience. That was really, really difficult. But by this time, Luz, I understood and had the skills necessary to be able to advocate for myself, as well as the skills necessary to understand of how to access resources and utilize them, which is not something I did in my undergraduate. I didn't understand about how to speak up and say, hey, I'm interested in this. How can you help me? What office does this? By the time I got to my master's program, I knew that. I understood that. And so people on my campus knew if I wanted to learn something, I'm going to ask somebody. And I also understood it wasn't just about always asking the right office. I had to find my connections on campus. So if that was a faculty member who I connected with really well, I'm always going to call on her and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do I do? Who do I talk to? (laughs) Right. Because I understand how to build connections now. And being a doctorate student (laughs) was not an easy journey. But for me, it was important to build myself because by this time in in graduate school, I got married. I had one child, a second child, a third child. And when I started my doctorate degree, I had a newborn baby along with my company in addition to working for a university. So it was a lot that I had to manage. But thank goodness for me being able to experience, you have to have a community around you. you. You can't do this by yourself. I didn't get that in undergrad, but I certainly use that to my advantage. My both, well, all three of my graduate degrees from there. Often people don't know how to navigate it in undergrad. And that's, again, advocating for yourself and accessing those resources. Because I think when you're in undergrad, you're just trying to get by. You're trying to just keep your head over water. And oftentimes, I think as first gens, we don't realize that there's more out there that can help us after that undergrad degree. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think looking back on my undergrad degree, I think that's something that I also could have worked better on, but I I think are are very important when you do get to graduate school and to really have an effective time in graduate school, you really need to hone in on those particular skills. Let me make sure I understand your timeline here. So you went and got your undergrad and right after went into your master's and your doctorate. I actually have two master's degrees. I, I got my undergraduate degree a bachelor's in broadcast journalism, and I minored in Spanish. And from which school was that? University of Southern Mississippi. And after that, I went straight into my first master's and thankfully discovered residence life, which was amazing. So I became a hall director, which paid for my master's degree. It was awesome. (laughs) I was like, people really do this professionally? Really? This is a thing? So I did it and got my master's in sports management and administration. After that, I was immediately offered a full-time position that when I got that position, it was a huge weight off my shoulders. I kind of just chilled (laughs) with everything because I knew I had a job lined up by the time I graduated the next summer. I went and worked full-time in corporate and I hated it loose. I hated every moment of it. I was making really amazing money, but I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing. 
<laughs> like I loved working in residence life and developing students and, and helping plan programs. And I was like, man, like, I think I need to <laughs> go back to higher ed. And so I did. I went back and I earned my second master's this time in higher education, college student development and counseling, which was amazing. That's when I, I just really like broke it down about oh, wow, this college student theory is really exciting to understand. Yeah, that's kind of cool how you were able to find that path from knowing what not to do. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, yep, I'm not a corporate girl. I'm going to go back to higher ed without where I was really thriving. So <laughs> I got another degree back in res life again. So housing and meals and all that paid for and, and enjoying what I was doing. And then from there, I was recruited to a couple of different universities to join their residence life program. And I ultimately decided on the University of Texas. So I became a professional hall director. And I just, I loved it. (laughs) Absolutely loved what I was doing. And then that's when the family came. Got married, had my first child. (laughs) And then I was recruited to Houston, the University of St. Thomas, to be the director of their housing program. And then I had my daughter and then went to a school district, worked there for a year, and then realized I should probably open up my own company. And that's when my company was born after my daughter. And from there, then had my third child. And so all this time, my husband's like, okay, well, you're going to start the doctor program. I was like, well, we keep having kids, we keep moving. (laughs) I keep getting job offers. Like I keep putting it off, putting off. I think about 10 years had passed. I remember saying to my husband, I said, I don't think life is ever going to slow down enough for me to do it. So I'm just going to do it. And I remember very specifically talking to one of my former colleagues who's a faculty member. And I said, I'm really thinking about this doctor. And she was like, you should do it. I'll write your recommendation. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And I remember she allowed me to see the recommendation letter and I cried. Again, coming from where I come from, not seeing people in my neighborhood who even went to college. I remember applying to the program. And it was a very reflective application for me because it it really allowed me to think about my entire experience with higher education. And when you are pursuing a doctorate, you have to really think about why, because not everything requires a doctorate. When you get into a doctorate program, it's rigorous. It's you better be ready to to read all day. (laughs) to write all day. You got to be ready for that. It's it's no joke. And so I had to really reflect, was I ready? With a full-time job, a company, volunteering, three kids, being a wife, was I really ready for this? So it took some time. And I remember when I got the call and they said, congratulations, you've officially been accepted. And I don't even remember the end of the call. Just really reflected on everything and just said, wow, this is really happening. This first gen, poor girl, (laughs) has just been accepted to get a doctorate degree. Definitely have gone a long way. You mentioned a little bit about how different it was in just the application alone, but I'm sure going through it is also so much different than what going through an undergrad degree. So for those of our listeners that don't know a whole lot about what a doctorate degree is, or what to maybe expect from one. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that experience actually is going through it? I know you mentioned a lot of reading and writing, but what does that all culminate to? And how different is it really from your regular undergrad experience? Oh, it's night and day. Let me tell you the thing I enjoyed the most. There were no tests. I was like, what? They're like, we don't do tests. You, you write, you read, you unpack information. You're a researcher now. 
But I think also the biggest thing about pursuing a doctorate is it's a completely different level. As an undergraduate, I took a lot of courses that everybody had to take that didn't necessarily fit in with my direction, but it was a baseline. When you're pursuing a doctorate, everything is about what you're focused on. I mean, everything. You learn to read differently. You learn to write differently. I just remember the first day I asked the professor, I said, so do doctorate students buy backpacks <laughs> or do we need like a briefcase? Like, and I remember she laughed at me. <laughs> I was like, I'm so serious. Do I need like a regular backpack? So yes, you get a regular backpack. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, all these smart people around me <laughs> and starting their doctorates. And when you get into a doctorate, I mean, it's so many different people in the space that have different experiences under like undergrad and the conversations that happen. I just, oh my goodness. I mean, from day one, we're talking about the conversations and really understanding how I understood research now and how I questioned things before I started my doctorate program. You know, in the news, they would, would say, well, this study was done at this university and 40% of the respondents now, you know, and you listen to that and you're like, wow, 40%. And when I get into a doctorate program, Starting to, to understand when I see that now, it's like, yeah, 40% of who? Were there 100 respondents? Were there 10 respondents? Who did, actually did you survey, right? And starting to really understand how things really work. And because I knew I wanted to pursue a study on first-generation college students, I came in with this understanding of, I'm going to completely change the world with my research, and I'm going to be, you know, it's amazing. And my faculty is saying, but what exactly do you want? want to study about first-generation college students. And I didn't know. So I was really high level with the subject, but the doctorate program helped me to understand about really digging in and unpacking research and finding out what are those questions? How do you want to add to the, the literature that's out there? How do you want to make a difference with what your findings are? And how do you work with your subjects, right? So really understanding that the difference in, in undergrad and, and graduate, you can't compare the two, but the doctorate level is... For anyone thinking about that, you have to be ready for deep thinking. You have to be ready for processing, reflection. And, and like I said, very seriously, you have to be someone who understands you have to be a good reader. You have to be a good writer because that's all you do. Because at the end of your program, you want to produce something for academia that can be utilized to further the research space. That's what I was the most excited about for colleges and universities to really look at and say, okay, I can help these students based on what you found out, now I have a frame of reference to be able to continue to support first-generation college students. I think you've done a really great job of summarizing what a doctorate degree is, so thank you for that. And kind of going off of that a little bit, I think a lot of people, when they think of doctorate degrees, they think, oh, this person wants to go and be a professor and just be a stuck in academia. But obviously, that's not the case for you. What came next? Like, how did you kind of figure that out? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm still figuring it out. Within the doctorate level, one thing I definitely want our first-generation college students, or as I like to call them, our educational pioneers, to be able to understand is there are lots of different doctorate options. So there's a PhD, there's the EDD, there's a JD, lots of doctorates. For me, it was really important, one, to understand which one I wanted to go for. And then also, I wanted to understand the tradition 
of where people ended up in their career after they got that particular degree. You don't always have to follow tradition, right? Most times when people think about the doctorate degree, they're like, okay, you're going to be a professor, which is completely fine. And in fact, I am a professor. So I do get a chance to teach and I love it. And my doctorate degree afforded me the opportunity to be able to educate inside the classroom. But because I'm also a small business owner, the doctorate immediately gave me research-based practices to be able to incorporate into my company. But once I started to understand research, once I started to understand studies and how different things occurred and what were some of the commonalities and themes produced in research, my company expanded exponentially because now it was really based on research-based practices that proved and provided certain solutions. And it had a foundation behind it. And that's something that can't be taken away from me. Now I understand what that foundation is and I continue to incorporate it. In addition to connections, undergrad, we, we learn about connections. We start to develop networking and what that means. But at the same time, I was in a classroom with a lot of different people from a lot of different areas. So those connections are still there. Those things continue to be ongoing. And as I, I work with colleges and universities, and especially with when we're talking about research-based institutions, that's their language. And if their language is, you got to bring us some research, we, we need some numbers in here. Okay, I got you. I, I got you. I can, I can do that for you now because I understand what you're talking about. In addition to, I think the biggest thing that this degree has done for me is it's helped me to understand how to help others. And because I've been through every process, the undergrad, master's and graduate, I, was, I really can help students now. Like it's just, it really has become full circle for me. I'm so excited about where this is going to go next and how I can continue to support students in their journeys, not just graduating from college, but also their professional careers as well. That is super exciting. And yeah, I love that. You have really shown that you do have that deeper understanding from digging deep in that doctorate degree. So it really does come full circle. And I just love how it has all come together. It's making me all excited about doctorate degrees. What would be some of those lessons learned and tips that you would offer our first gen audience? Here's the first thing. Make sure you're following me on IG because I drop plenty of gems <laughs> about this type of information. But make sure that you're connected with people that are willing to share that information. Whether that's peers, whether that is your faculty, which have been through the doctoral process, right, themselves, whether that is current doctoral students, that's graduate students who are in the application, connecting, connecting, connecting. If I had to find one word that really propels our first generation college students and who we are, it's our connections. Because research tells us first-generation college students don't necessarily have cultural capital, meaning we didn't necessarily grow up around people who told us about their experiences. So in your household, those conversations didn't look the same as a household that has someone, at least one person with a college degree. And I live that every day, right? Because in my house, both me and my husband have college degrees. My children, since the day they were born, they know about college. And so cultural capital, meaning how can we put people around us that have that knowledge, have that access 
to where we're trying to go. For first-generation college students, you have to build that. But a lot of colleges and universities today, they have first-gen offices. They have first-gen supports. They have first-gen efforts. Every first-generation college student should figure out where is that support on your campus. Because nine times out of 10, they are also providing support about graduate school. And even if they don't, you as a first-generation college student should amplify your voice and say, where can I get information about graduate school? Who do I need to talk to? Who is going to support me? Those are the questions that every first gen should feel very confident in asking. We don't thrive as first-generation college students by ourselves. We have an entire community around us to be able to take us to the next level if we're willing to put ourselves out there and go and get it. A lot of times we may not know the questions to ask, but that's the very question you should ask. And that's the very conversation you should have. So I challenge every listener right now that we have to find that one person on your college campus to say, I'm interested in grad school. Where do I start? Every institution has a graduate office. That's probably a good place to start is the graduate office. Because as a freshman, if you talk about graduate school, now you have three entire years to chart your path and create a plan, which is amazing (laughs) versus someone who's in their senior year last semester. And they're like, oh, yeah, what about grad school? Now you got to kind of get your ducks in a row. So it's always about connecting. It's always about reaching out. And it's always about making sure you're, you're networking with those people who really understand your identity, as well as the ones who may not understand your identity. They also bring value because now they can share information about what their family has taught them. So I would say don't let anyone be off limits, but the focus is connect. Don't do it by your yourself because that's not what college success is. College success is not isolating and it's not about being alone. And so as long as you have a community around you, you're good. I love that. I think that is so important. And I've actually learned that now more since I've graduated, how important it is to make those connections. So thank you so much, Dr. Norman, for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I certainly have learned a lot. So I hope our listeners also learned as much and really take into consideration those really valuable tips. It was such a pleasure being here. As you heard from our guests, doctorate degrees are definitely no joke. Pursuing a doctorate is completely different from undergrad. It involves discipline, a deep dive into research that culminates into a final dissertation and lots of reading and writing. Because doctorate degrees are so specific, you want to make sure your goals are aligned and you have done your due diligence to understand what you can do with the degree and how it can help you get to where you want to go, whether that's academia, entrepreneurial ventures, and or industry. No matter where you go, remember to make those connections because as Dr. Norman has learned, college success is about having community and network, learning to build and advocate for yourself and asking questions to know how to access resources. Thanks again to our speakers and thank you for tuning in today on How to College for First Gens. For more resources and information about grad school, check out our website at howtocollegefirstgen.org. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter to get additional resources and be part of our community. Remember, you are not alone on this journey. Until next time.